Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. Right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Ted Gerber at Forest Vineyards. Uh, it's September 27th, 2019. Thanks so much for joining us today, Ted. We appreciate this. Yes. Uh, first question for you, the most important question. Uh, why wine? Um, in, the, in the 60s when I was in college, um, I found wine. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, then began making home wine in the San Francisco Bay Area. And the fellow I bought the grapes from uh, in Gilroy um, said move to Oregon you could get started with a strong back and no money <laughs> and I was looking what am I going to do after college because I originally was going to go to law school mm -hmm. after graduating with the BA and uh, decided no I don't want to sit behind a desk now you know what I do? <laughs> I sit behind a desk because I've pushed myself out of the field and out of the winery. It's a good irony, I like that. So tell me about, uh, when you say you discovered wine in college, I assume that was, you, you had a bottle that really appealed to you or it was, was there a certain moment when wine became a thing that you were interested in pursuing? Uh, no, just friends. There was um, Krabari, I don't know if you know that winery. It's an older one, and they had a lot of older wines at the liquor stores in Hayward, where mm -hmm. I went to college. And um, we got good wines for cheap prices because they were trying to get rid of some <laughs> stuff. And actually, after I finished college, um, I got a job. I needed money. Got a job uh, trying to get money to come to Oregon to, mm -hmm. to, to uh, build a house, plant some grapes. And... Um, the first ton of grapes I bought, uh, we took it to the house. It took me three days to figure out how to crush it. The potato masher didn't work. Finally, we figured out, put it in a plastic garbage can and walk on it. You could crush it that way. So put the uh, wine downstairs. I was living in a converted chicken coop. Um, there was a dirt floor downstairs, but there was two bedrooms and living room and a kitchen upstairs and cleaned up after three days. I went to work at the glass factory on midnight shift and the lady who was my girlfriend at the time became my wife came to the factory and said your house is burning. So the whole house burnt down uh, because the hot water heater was too close. It, it was a gas hot water heater caught the wall on fire because we'd cleaned up everything. So. I went back and got enough grapes to make five gallons of wine. And I, so I actually started out with a clothes on my back and five gallons of wine. And that, that kind of got me excited about I'm, wine's going to be where I'm going. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Um, tell me about those kind of initial processes making wine at home and, and, and what, what, what you learned about the process and maybe what appealed to you about the idea of making wine. Um, I did have some 30-gallon barrels and did barreled wine. Um, had uh, I got a press from a, an Italian over in San Francisco, made the metal parts, and 
so I could do, the first press was no more than three cubic feet with a hydraulic jack. And I could do 100 gallons or something like that through that. And then, then the bigger press, which I still have here, don't use, um, that was a basket press and had to build the wooden parts to go with it. And the fellow who in Gilroy I bought the grapes from, um, he went back into the uh, pre-prohibition in his family. So I got all this Italian knowledge of do this, do that. Um, at the end of the season, he invited all his uh, customers to a dinner at the Elks Club in Gilroy. And Mr. Clark from Texas, I and my roommate in college were the only non-Italians. And it was a cultural experience. <laughs> it, was, it was fun. There was a, um, accordion, uh, drums, and I think it was a saxophone was the band. Mm -hmm. And everybody brought their wines. And I, the wine I liked best after, there must have been 75 wines on the table. And we, my roommate and I tasted and, and the one that was so exciting was a one from the novitiate in uh, Silicon Valley, Los Gatos, I think it is. And they were associated with Christian Brothers. And they had, they had blended some muscat in the Zinfandel. And it stood out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when I moved here, I, I, I'm going to grow some Zinfandel and put it in Pinot Noir. Because Pinot Noir and Gewürztraminer were the first grapes that, that I planted. And uh, so I went to Dick Erath, and he had brought up early muscat from California. And it ripened early. Most muscats ripen later. Mm -hmm. And so I planted that. Uh, 44 first vines are still out here bearing, and it made terrible wine. <laughs> it was a bad idea. <laughs> I think it was the aromatics that stood out in that tasting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but as the years gone on, uh, we've made muscat in several different ways, and now we make a pretty good size of production of muscat. So you mentioned Dick Erath. You, you knew Dick before you moved, moved up here, is that is that right? No, I met Dick because of Myron Redford and Amity. And Myron knew that I was looking for um, some muscat. Mm -hmm. And went over to Dick's house. At, at that time, his, his uh, winery was in his basement. Mm -hmm. And um, I had bought cuttings from Myron Redford for my first planting. Mm -hmm. And so that, that Myron got me in touch with Dick. That's how I got to know Dick. Gotcha. Okay. So tell me about the process of uh, once you had you, you had kind of caught in the caught the bug and you had been told Oregon is the place to go. So tell me about finding this space. Uh, what drew you to it? Why Cave Junction? Why you know why this particular land? And and then actually making the move in, 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 up here. Um, when I decided maybe try it, it was because I had friends from college that had moved to Cave Junction, and they were building a house on a commune, and. So I visited them, and the temperature records at the smoke jumper base were 30 or 40 years worth. Mm -hmm. And the experiment station in, on Hanley Road in Jacksonville had planted grapes just prior to me looking mm -hmm. at, at the area. And I went to uh, UC Davis and talked to Extension there, and I said, you know, uh, flatland 
because I was looking at this ranch. I, I bought a previous property and built a house, sold that, and then bought this property. Mm -hmm. And uh, they said there's no no problem with, with flatland as long as um, you don't have frost problems or swamp problems. And this area never had any horticulture. It was all cattle, uh, timber, and so. Um, what I what I finally figured out is we're going to have frost problems. I got to put in an overhead frost system, mm -hmm. and uh, Valley View would put one in, but that was the only other one I knew in Southern Oregon. In Northern Oregon, used most places don't have to have overhead sprinkler mm -hmm. systems, but at that time it was cattle land prices for grape land, so it was, it was a good deal mm -hmm. uh, to get started in this area. And when you did get started, you mentioned you mentioned Valley View and a couple of others. You didn't have a lot of not a lot of neighbors. Tell me about the kind of the status of, of the Southern Oregon wine when when you got started. Uh, how many people were making wine? How how many people were buying it? Now, when I first started, I taught a class at the Rogue Community College on um, uh, winemaking for home winemakers, and I thought because the fellow in Gilroy. His, one of his, his major customers were home winemakers. And I thought, well, I could teach people how to make wine. Well, lumberjacks don't really want to make wine. <laughs> and at the area, it, it didn't work to try to build a business off that model. Um, Porter Lombard, who was at uh, Southern Oregon mm -hmm. uh, Experiment Station, he had planted the grapes there, I think in 68, I believe. And he, Things were starting to ripen. They could get some statistics about the time I bought this property. So every year he had two, I think it was probably two meetings over to uh, Extension Service in, in Medford. And there was a group of people, um, same people every year for about five or six years. And it was a Dunbar Carpenter who planted grapes uh, John Osterout was in Eagle Point. Um, uh, Valley View, uh, Frank Wisnowski at first, and then when he passed away, I think Mark would come sometimes. Um, Roger Lane, who was in the Applegate Valley. And I didn't think there was three or four other, and we'd have this meeting, be the same people, and that was, that was kind of the core of how the knowledge was starting to be passed around here in Southern Oregon. Well, how would you describe the, that, that knowledge? Uh, everyone's still pretty new to it and the area is still pretty new to, to grapes of, of that quantity. So tell me about the, the learning curve for putting in fine wine grapes down here. Well, I chose Pinot Noir and Gewürztraminer because they ripened the earliest at the experiment station. Now Gewürztraminer is just about the last thing we pick. I figured out it, it, it's not a light white wine. It, you want a baseball bat to hit you over the head with flavor. And, and uh, um, the uh, other varieties, I, I think I was told that the experimental plot at the, at the experiment station was put over the septic field, which it, I think it skewed the ripening. Because I kept looking at Valley View and some other people planting Cabernet Sauvignon and other later ripening varieties. I thought, well, look at the numbers. They're not ripening. And 
Part of that was a lack of knowledge of when to pick. Um, and it, when I first came here, I don't know who, what beyond Pinot Noir and Gewürztraminer could I plant? And I've tried a lot of different varieties. And it's taken almost, it took about 25, 30 years or more to figure out who Forest is mm -hmm. and what the climate's given us. And so we're Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, and Alsatian varieties. Mm -hmm. We tried Bordeaux varieties, and you can get the sugar up, but the flavor's not there. Mm -hmm. We're compared to the Rogue Valley proper over by Medford. We get colder nights, so that changes us having the ability to ripen the Bordeaux mm -hmm. varietals. Mm -hmm. And we get with the colder nights, we get more acid in the whites. So the the, the whites. And I've started tagging the name Forest on the whites more and more over the years. And it's 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 what this climate or this this valley wants. And Pinot Noir works good too. And so people don't generally think of Pinot Noir being this far south. It's not usually considered. So so you're fairly high elevation as well. Is that is that yeah. right? And that played well for me when. I first started Forest, which was in 1986, which was, I planted here and started in 75. So when I started marketing wine, north end of the state thought, you can't grow Pinot Noir down there, it's too hot. Mm -hmm. And so I bought Bordeaux varietals from uh, the Medford area and made wine and sold that north. 95, 96% of our Pinot Noir for three or four years was trucked as bulk wine to Wapato, to Staten Hills Winery, where Rob Stewart was the winemaker. That's how I made the connection. Hmm. And that was all marketed to Asia, mainly. And I, so I gave the north end of the state what they thought we were until we could slowly build up the name that yes, you can grow Pinot Noir in the south end of the state if you're in the right places. In 1980, I think it was, it was late 80s, International Pinot Noir Celebration. I think I'm probably the only winery that ever had three wines presented from three different wineries. Because we sold bulk wine to Bridgeview, to Staten Hills, and, my, and had my own. And they all got chosen for IPNC. <laughs> and then for, for some years, IPNC um, uh, wanted something, well, they had the International, California, and they wanted something from Southern Oregon. And Forrest was the main Pinot Noir producer for years, so we got invited every year for many years. Mm -hmm. And now there's, there's so many Pinot producers, they won't let the same people come every year. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about the, it's, it's interesting to me that you had this interest in, in you, Cave, you chose Cave Junction as a place and you had this interest in Pinot Noir. Did you ever consider going to the Willamette Valley instead uh, when, when Pinot Noir became something you were interested in or did you always want to make it work here? Uh, South end of the state, I, I didn't really want to go to Willamette, I don't know why. I know uh, uh, Richard Summers, he had gone to college in Ashland. He was in Roseburg with Hillcrest Winery, and he, he always talked about the south end of the state. He was 
hook to that more. And, and going back to a question you asked previously, when my house burned down, first thing we did when I, when I left the glass factory was uh, stopped at B Street Liquors and there were two bottles way up high and it was a, just about the first Pinot Noir and Gewürz demeanor and drank those while we had watched the house burn down. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, so tell me about uh, this this vineyard space uh, and, and sort of what's what's unique about it. What are the, what are the kind of key characteristics uh, of your of your vineyard here, other other than elevation, of course? What else is unique about the terroir here? Um, if you walked outside, you would hear heavy machinery, and we're crushing uh, the mining tailings. We we were the dump in the 1880s for a gold mine that was over the hill. So this, the upper area of, of this ranch uh, has rock and sand mixed in with the native loam soil. Um, right here, right in front of the winery, when I dug a frost pond for frost protection, we hauled that, all that dirt on. It was pure mining tailings, just rock. Well, now it's got about a foot and a half of clay on top of it. Um, so the, the soils here are definitely different than up north. Mm -hmm. uh, we have two other ranches um, a couple miles from here. And one is uh, a lot of river, uh, gravel, and loam. It changes dramatically from one area to another. The other ranch sits up a little bit, and I've never seen a puddle on that ranch. It's, it's well drained, but only about five feet down. But it's got clay and rock mixed in the topsoil. And each ranch, I mean, within a couple miles, each ranch d definitely gives a different mm -hmm. wine. It's, it, I mean, it's amazing to me that that little bit of difference in soil, the, the ranch that sits up a little bit at night, um, at the top of it, it's five degrees warmer than this ranch here. But the bottom of it is the same temperature as this ranch here, so it, it changes dr dramatically. It's amazing. Tell me about the the, the challenges. Uh, f first time going from buying grapes and making home wine to actually putting vines in the ground. Tell me about the, the challenges of that and perhaps the unique challenges given the characteristics of your vineyard, the rock and clay vineyard. Uh, what was it like putting grapes in the, in the ground the first time? Um, soil and water conservation were giving grants to convert from flood irrigation to sprinkler. So w this was a flood irrigated uh, pasture when I bought it. So they gave me a plan uh, on how to get a, a frost protection sprinkler system in. And like a fool, I didn't know what I was doing. I waited till fall to plow the field and then get the trenches in to get the pipes in. And it rained an awful lot after I had the pipes in the trench. And so the pipes had air in them and they floated up and then were at the bottom of the trench. So I had to go back by hand and dig out of about a mile and a half of pipe to put, never again did I wait, always put the pipes in the ground dead of summer when it's dry. And at that time, uh, California was um, uh, pretty much eight by 12 spacing. And that came from 
the old horse uh, vineyards that were planted seven by seven, so they could cultivate both ways. And then when tractors came along, uh, they were told, you know, you could take out every other row and go down each, each, each aisle way that way. So they were, they were um, uh, 14 by seven. And then they said, well, you know, you could tighten that up. You could go 12 by eight. And that was a standard when I started planting. And um, since then, I've, I've changed a lot of that. And our, our standard planting now is, is uh, four by eight. Um, but the, uh, with, with the change, um, I had to go back and um, interplant rows and, and those sort of things. And that came late, that came in the last 15 to 20 years. Um, there was a grape stake at every plant when we planted. That was a standard. No, you don't need a grape stake at every plant. You could put a grape stake every few plants and put a piece of bamboo to train the plant up on. And um, you could uh, have a tractor, my wife, uh, would hold the auger in the back and drill the hole for the plant and d drill it deep enough so the grape stake went in there. And you don't have to do that. And then we, when we had a grape stake to train the plant on, you had to take tape and tie the tape on to train the plant up. And now they got grow tubes mm -hmm. and just let it train itself and come back and, and use a tape gun and just staple it on the, on the bamboo. Yeah. So it was a lot of um, uh, too much work. It was, it was, I mean, one of the stupidest things I did was in in high school, I uh, I worked the last year that the Becerro program was involved in California, mm -hmm. and I get on my scooter and then a friend, and we'd go out to the camp in Hamilton City out of Chico, and get on the bus and go to the field and hoe sugar beets. And I, I got money and I had a car because I had money and all sorts of things in high school. So, but they, the, the hoe they gave you was, had a handle about this long. They're against the law now. But I came up here and I'm gonna plant grapes. I'm gonna hoe around everything. And I know how to hoe. I hoed. So I go to town and I buy a couple of hoes and I cut the handle off. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't too bright. <laughs> and then I learned different hoes, weights of hoes, because the first 10, 15 years, uh, I had something called a green hoe that sat on the side of a tractor and you had a joystick so the, the, the plow blade goes around the plant, and the next time uh, it throws the dirt towards it, and then hand hoe around, around the plant. And other than, well, sulfur I used, so I, I was pretty much organic, didn't even know that was important to be, <laughs> it was just the way to do it. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, I, right now we use ATVs to do a lot of things, we don't, we push the grape stakes in where we need to push the grape stakes in with the tractor. So it's, it's been a learning experience. <laughs> Tell me about the, the um, with the soil, was there anything specific you had to learn in terms of like with the rockier soil? Was that 
would, would that make it harder for the vines to go in, harder for them to find root, or was it easier? Uh, it was, it, it, long, we, with overhead sprinklers, we could sprinkle for a while. Now this field, I have three quarters of an acre that's the, the mining tailings that I have a little bit of dirt on. I have drip on that two times a year. Mm -hmm. The rest of it is non-irrigated except for frost protection. Mm -hmm. So once you get them established, they're, they're, they're fine in the soil. On the other ranches, I've got inclusions of um, a, a rock spit or a sand layer, and so there's spots we have to drip irrigate. Mm -hmm. And so all the ranches have overhead sprinkler systems. Um, the one ranch, Maple Ranch, um, it's uh, got gravity feed frost protection on almost the whole thing. We've got a pond at the top, so all you got to do for frost protection is go out and turn a few valves on it. It's covered. That's amazing. Tell me about the sort of the evolution from starting to, to now. Obviously, you mentioned multi multiple sites, multiple ranches. Now you're making tens of thousands of cases of wine a year. Tell me about the kind of growth. Uh, you've mentioned um, finding the right varietals that work. Uh, was it always an intention to get? So, well, get back to the question now. When you, when you started, did you have an idea that you would get to be this big of a winery? The, the standard that I read before I started was a 20,000 case winery. Was You were big enough to afford a winemaker and marketing, and that's not right. Um, that's if, if, if you're in Napa or you're someplace close to a large metropolitan area and you can do a lot of direct marketing. Mm -hmm. Uh, for us, we had to get bigger. Um, we're in 44 states, uh, a lot of Canada, Japan. And to justify um, Julianne, who's done our marketing since 94, she was the first wine advisory board uh, director in the late 80s. Hmm. And uh, she's retiring to halftime in two days. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm going through a transition right now of, of people that have been here a long time, but they're getting to the age they want to slow up. Mm -hmm. um, so when I first started, first year I sold grapes to Valley View, and that was 1978. In 77, I knew I w was going to have a harvest, and I could never leave during harvest, so I went to Sonoma and worked in some wineries uh, for about two to three weeks just mm -hmm. to get it, a feel of what commercial was. And then uh, Valley View, when I first delivered, um, went to town, got some plastic garbage cans and delivered in plastic garbage cans. The next year I had made wooden boxes, crates, which were the way, was the way the fellow in Gilroy had, had delivered grapes to his home wine customers. Mm -hmm. And uh, that didn't work too well because when it's been raining and you got boxes in the mud and you set them on top of another box, that you, you don't want that. <laughs> so eventually I got to the point of fruit bins. Um, the, uh, the, the, let's see, 80, 88 was the first year and I think, no, it's 78 was the first year. And um, uh, trying to get uh, all the equipment to make things. I had a, uh, a rusted out chicken 
delivery truck that I'd bought. I didn't, that would, came out of Canada's why it's all rusty. And so I, we had to sit, every stack everything up or put things in. And that was uh, hard. And watching Valley View struggle because they didn't quite know what they were doing at that point. And Frank Wisnowski had died, um, so the kids were running it. And uh, over time, it wasn't until the mid-80s I finally thought, this might work. Because of early years I thought, I don't know. The, the, the uh, finances, um, there, were, there was a lot of different stumbling areas. Mm. Um, so uh, at, as it grew, I got more confident. But it wasn't until the mid-80s that I had that confidence. Mm. We had some other side businesses that started in the 80s. That nursery, I sold a lot of nursery stock. Mm. Um, when Oregon State brought the Dijon clones in, um, because I bought some cuttings from Myron Redford and planted Chardonnay here, and there was probably 25 to 30 Pinot Noir cuttings mixed in. So when I'd pick the Chardonnay, I'd leave the Pinot Noir and make it, that was my home wine. And it uh, made terrible wine. The clone was bad. So when I went and heard Raymond Bernard that came and talked about the Dijon clones, because he had, um, he was the one that kind of selected all those things. And they were chosen for wine quality, not lack of disease. Um, and they had a lot bigger selection that they could get out of France than California had here. So you could get 25 vines of each clone. And there were about five clones, I think, of Pinot Noir. And I think at that time there was four clones of Chardonnay they released. Mm -hmm. And so I got the limit. And I took them to a friend that uh, grew chrysanthemums for Harry and David. That, that, that brought chrysanthemum plants in from New York in the fall. Then he would take cuttings, and you, you can root the cuttings and take cuttings off those plants, and, and, and green leaf propagation, it's called. Mm -hmm. So when I took him these, uh, what was that, about 225 uh, vines, he blew them up, and I had the next spring, I had four acres of Chardonnay, Dijon, and four acres of, of uh, uh, Pinot Noir. Mm -hmm. I got way ahead of the whole industry. Nobody else went and did that. So I, that year, that was 89, they found phylloxera in Oregon. Mm -hmm. and they just ruined my business plan because I was going to take cuttings and sell them to people to sell fruit. <laughs> so. The night in '90, I started. Oh, I thought well, maybe the grafters in California want some Dijon clone, and they're they're doing a lot of replanting because AXR, the rootstock was failing. So I called. Uh, I remember I called Sunridge, which was a big nursery, um, and uh, Sonoma grapevines. I think I don't think I called Duarte then, and asked them if they wanted to buy some Dijon clones. They thought I was stupid. They'd never heard of it because they were focused on, on the rootstock and not on, on the fruiting variety mm -hmm. to graph on top. And about a week later, I started getting phone calls and I, I sold every bud 
that I had for about two to three years. So it, it really helped develop the winery. And John, who did the propagation for me, that that he did for uh, Herring David, mm -hmm. he was in the Mexican restaurant uh, a couple years later, and I walked in and I said, I had to do it real loud. John, John, I just sold a semi-load of buds to California. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody in the restaurant, because everything was really illegal at that time, you couldn't be talking about that. And, uh, but I had sold that day, it sold a, a um, it was a 28-foot fan, and it was about waist, waist deep in cuttings to Kendall Jackson. Because I, I had a real good market until they had the wood down there, and then that fell apart. Mm -hmm. and the other thing we had, uh, did a lot of is uh, made grapevine wreaths. We had over 500 customers, and we would take prunings uh, and haul them to. Uh, there was four or five people that uh, they were mainly ladies. There was one guy, and uh, they could work at home. We deliver truckloads of prunings, and they'd make the wreaths, and then bring them to us. And it, this was in late 80s, early 90s, and they were make, watch their kids and make $12, $15 an hour. So it was good for them, and we had run into somebody that uh, had a um, marketing, um, they would go to trade shows, mm -hmm. and they pretty much developed the whole market for us, so all we had to do is get efficient in getting the mm -hmm. stuff in. And, Tell me about uh, selling wine, uh, from especially the early days. Uh, finding a market, you mentioned not you're not really anywhere near any kind of population centers. How did you sell, not your bulk wine, but actual bottled wine as you were developing the forest label? Uh, it started with a distributor in Medford, mm -hmm. and uh, then I found one in Portland. Um, I kept selling a lot of grapes at the same time, so we didn't, I think we, in the late 80s, we were at 10,000 cases and struggling to, to find a, a market for all that. Mm -hmm. uh, when Julianne came on in 94, she started taking things national. Mm -hmm. And uh, she'd been a road warrior on the road for 25 years for me. Mm -hmm. And just for us, that, that's it. So that, that really helped develop the markets. Mm -hmm was to have somebody out there on the road. Because with the distributors, if you, if you go there and you present your wines, and they start selling them, you go back six months to a year later and half the salespeople are gone. They just know they got a book and they don't know anything about you. So you have to keep going back at least every other year, if not every year, mm -hmm. to, to be in, in their presence. And it used to be, Ride with us. When I first started with uh, uh, the International Wines, it was called up in Portland, and then I went to Grape Expectations in Portland, and uh, you'd you'd try to get ride with with the salespeople. Now most distributors they don't want you to waste their salesperson's time with ride ride with, and so you've got to find other ways to. They'll let you come to a sales meeting, and the old way a sales meeting. Uh, is you stand up and talk about your wine. Now, the, the, the way that seems to be working pretty well is you sit at a table and the salespeople go to one winery, 
10 minutes later to another winery, to another winery, and you all get your presentation that way. And it, you, you get one-on-one -on -one with mm -hmm. the salespeople rather than trying to talk to a crowd. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But that's the marketing end of it. I mean, most, most people were like me that are in the industry. Uh, plant a vineyard, where am I gonna get rid of these grapes? Start a winery, how am I gonna sell this wine? And then think about marketing less. Uh, Firesteed went the opposite way. He had marketing down, went back and bought Flynn, and had, had production. And it's almost a smarter way to, to get in the industry is to start from the marketing end rather than the, uh, the growing end. The growing is where the passion is, though. Yeah, it's where the fun is. No, there, I have a friend, he says, there, there, there's nothing romantic about wine till it gets in the glass. That's about right. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me about, you mentioned uh, selling grapes, and something you've done from the very beginning is selling grapes and, and developing those relationships. Tell, tell me about finding people to buy grapes and finding, uh, finding where you're going to sell your grapes to and then developing those relationships over the years. Um, Valley View was the first one, and they were hurting for grapes. There were no grapes. And they were going down to um, uh, Northern California in the Christian Brothers Vineyard that the Christian Brothers had backed away from in Shingles Town or Shingle Springs. It's out of Red Bluff, up in the hills towards Lassen. Oh, wow. And uh, they were hauling grapes up from there. And but So there, there was a bit of a market. And then Amity came along. Uh, and he was trying to find a place that was warmer than the north end of the state so he could take Pinot Noir and make um, a Beaujolais that's out in November. And as it turned out, I sold to him for that product for about four years or five years. And half the time, he was earlier than me. We ripen just about the same time that the north end of the state does. So that, that, that didn't work. And then, no, oh, Kinman uh, bought mm -hmm. quite a bit from me at one point mm -hmm. uh, when Doyle Hinman was there. Mm -hmm. And um, right, right now my market is, is uh, uh, Herring David and John House, I don't know if you know, John's buying quite a bit from me. And then Scott Valley, down here in Northern California, I'm selling grapes to a small winery down there. Mm -hmm. Um, Pam Walden, which is Daedalus, uh, Willful, Willful Wine. Mm -hmm. uh, she, I got to get some grapes to her next week, and I think there's three or four other places. But uh, word of mouth, mm -hmm. and right now, one that kind of works is at WineBusiness.com. Mm -hmm. You can see what's on the market at what price and who's. And you advertise, and you, you'll get calls that you never thought you'd get. <laughs> or find out, nobody's going to want to buy this. <laughs> I'm not getting any calls. You mentioned taking a long time to figure out what, your, what, what was going to grow here, what your varietals were going to be. Tell me about some of the things you, you tried and, and that didn't work or tried that you've, you've kept small amounts of, perhaps, uh, outside, of your, outside of your kind of your main Pinot, Chardonnay uh, varieties. You know, the... the uh, Cabernet, Merlot, yeah, we, we threw that idea away. And uh, Syrah, I thought of trying it. I've got one plant out there <laughs> left, but it, uh, it's hard to market 
into being from this area. I don't think that's the proper thing. I tried uh, some other German varieties, aromatic ones, um, and having a, I think about Abacella and trying to go out and market uh, a Tempranillo from the Umqua Valley. Most people don't know Umqua and don't know Tempranillo. Mm -hmm. And so you pretty much, if, if you need to pick chocolate and vanilla a little bit to be able to, because that's what people want. And then you can, can kind of lead people. I've got now an acre and a half of Tempranillo uh, because uh, Julianne in marketing wanted a second red that's a state, and that's about the only other red I think I can grow here. So um, there, there's spots for other things, but I've, I've eliminated a lot of the tribe. I, I tried Semillon, uh, I tried Sauvignon Blanc, um, uh, Chasselas Rouge, which I got from Oregon State, and everybody that from France says there is no Chasselas Rouge, and I say, "Come here and look, I got one." Um, when Oregon State decided to do a trial in, I think this was mid mid seventies, they gave plants seven vines of five different varieties. Chasla Rouge was one, um, and then uh, Pinot Gris, Pinot Blanc, a clone of Pinot Noir, and Sylvaner. And I, have, I still have that planting. And they gave me the vines, tried them. I thought, well, who's ever going to want to buy Pinot Gris? Uh, guess what? The second most uh, consumed wine is Pinot Gris in the United States because of the Italian stuff that comes into the Italian populations in different areas. And Pinot Blanc, uh, Myron Redford, and some other people up north tried to uh, uh, get a Pinot Blanc um, club or mm -hmm. whatever. The Blancs, Blancs have more fun. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, I planted that, and it's worked very well, but it's still a hard market. And so that's why I've stuck with Riesling, uh, Pinot Gris, Pinot Blanc, and Gewurz, mm -hmm. and the Moscato for the Alsatian stuff, and that, that's as far as I need to go. When you've sold your grapes over the years to these various winemakers, has anybody done anything particularly that you found particularly exciting with your grapes? Have you ever had a wine of your own grapes made by someone else that you thought was was different or unique or, or, or kind of kind of uh, a cool a cool thing to experience. Um, John House is doing in cement tanks, mm -hmm. and I don't like that style of wine, but he gets really good ratings. <laughs> <laughs> so, and and he gives me credit, and and I sold uh, Pinot Blanc to King Estate, mm -hmm. and I've never seen another winery put another winery's name on their front label. And the vineyard source, Forest Vineyards, is right on the front of the label. Thank you for helping market me. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, there was, I don't know of any other wineries that have really helped us in, in, in promoting us through their, their winemaking. Uh, I've got a lot of customers. I mean, Erath used to buy a lot of 
Gavert's demeanor for me. And then when St. Michelle bought Erath, they, they cut Gavert's demeanor out. Um, Bethel Heights was buying uh, Penal Grief for me. But I didn't want to do all the paperwork to be live certified. And it was, I mean, it was a nightmare when you had grapes coming from different vineyards. And so, I, so they backed off on, on that. Mm -hmm. uh, August Sellers was buying a lot of Gewurz demeanor for me. And um, it's okay, John House makes his wine there now. So just as much Gewurz demeanor goes into that winery. Um, and, and I'm trying to think who else. Um, over the years, that, that, that's about, if I go back and look, I, I can think about where I sold a lot of the, the cuttings to California. <laughs> <laughs> and that was a lot of high-end wineries that were buying Dijon clone stuff from us. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, it was, I gave so much material into California that they sent some, because the nursery wasn't certified, the vineyard wasn't certified because there was, I couldn't get it certified because there was a vineyard above it where something could wash down into it. So I couldn't get those blocks certified. Mm -hmm. And they thought I was maybe passing out disease. So they came and tested every vine in those eight acres and found out, you know, there's no disease. Ted didn't pass all this disease <laughs> through all these nurseries and grafters in California. Amazing. Uh, tell us why the name Forest. Um, I looked around and Madrone was already taken, Pine Ridge. Uh, I couldn't find a tree and I was in the middle of a forest. I mean this hillside here is BLM and it's spotted elk corridor and it'll never get cut. And uh, this forest over here eventually we ended up buying. Um, and I, I couldn't find, I wanted to be a, a tree. In fact, our first label was a, a, a tree and nobody could see it as a tree because the F was, a, I've got the label in the other room, I can show it to you. But the F was kind of built like a tree and so all the mail came to Oris, not Forest. They, they, there's, there's visually illiterate people out there. And, and uh, so I went to the, um, the library in Grants Pass and looked up the word forest. And, or looked up the F-O-R-E-S-T. Mm -hmm. And there was forest, F-O-R-I-S, which was early Latin for meaning out of doors. And then Charlemagne's forest was called forestus. And I wanted something that was European sounding, which it's Hungarian because I get a lot of Hungarian people think they found a relative. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, easy to pronounce, and not confused with, and, you know, like Firestone, you know, is that a tire or a wine? <laughs> and and uh, then the most, uh, the winery that's been the most successful in the United States has the same number of letters, Gallo. Hmm? So, <laughs> I figured I'm I'm set for success. <laughs> and tell us about the the pronunciation of forest and your in your your new knowledge or perhaps knowledge of that. Well, my my knowledge was forest, mm -hmm. 
But then the ballet dancers from San Francisco that stopped in the taste room said I was pronouncing it wrong. That it's for for Reese. So I still don't know how to pronounce <laughs> the name of the winery. <laughs> uh, so after you started started making wine here, uh, tell me uh, about sort of your winemaking philosophy. What what was it you wanted your wines to be? What did you want someone to get get out of the, the wines you were making here? A good deal. I didn't really want to build trophy wines. Uh, I need to make money, but. Uh, I'd like the wines to be affordable and higher quality than anything else in its price range. We had a really good um, niche for a lot of years that our Pinot Noir, uh, we can run production and ripen fully and it makes better wine if we run about three and a half tons per acre on, on Pinot Noir. No more than four, after four, it, I mean, you get up to four and it, it, it weakens the wine. Mm -hmm. If you go too low, you get um, too much alcohol. You get, the sugar gets too high. So in terms of tonnage here and tonnage at the north end of the state, have a little bit of an advantage. Mm -hmm. And to try to keep the wine in the wine by glass price category, uh, there's a lot of wine that moves that way and, that, and, and restaurants build a business for retail. Mm -hmm. so, you want restaurant business, but you, you also really want a lot of retail. Because like in Oregon, I think 80, 85% of wine is sold through retail. Mm -hmm. um, so if we kept that wine by the glass category, you sell a lot more wine than if you have one bottle on the wine list. And so people find, find your wine. And so that, but then, there's been more production and north end of the state decided well we may have to get the wine price down a little bit so they can get and they've kind of pushed us around a little bit in that wine by the glass category price wise mm -hmm. so th that w that was one of the considerations that i wanted I'd, I'd like we have a wine called cedar ranch which is one of our ranches pinot noir and it's done well it gets consistent ratings of 91, 92, um, and it's hard to sell because it doesn't say Willamette Valley on it. That's, that's when in Japan, if, if we could put Willamette Valley on it, they told us we could sell the wine a lot more. And we run into that constantly um, in distributorships, and the north end of the state has done a great job of, of talking about uh, the Willamette Valley. When Julianne was the head of the Wine Advisory Board, she was pushing that Oregon's should say we are the Pinot State. We do Pinot better than anybody else. I remember Druin talking one time and saying, you know, Chardonnay, although he makes Chardonnay now, but Chardonnay you can make it in Ohio. But Pinot Noir, there's only specific places you can make. Mm -hmm. And she was pushing to say, you know, Pinot Gris, Pinot Blanc, Pinot Meunier, Pinot Noir, we are the Pinot State. And um, we fly under their wing up north a little bit with um, being Oregon. Mm -hmm. But when someone wants to know about uh, Rogue Valley, and, and we had a, the two areas, Umpqua and, and Rogue Valley, went together to get another appellation called Southern Oregon. Mm -hmm. And so we were marketing Rogue Valley 
for 10 years or more on our labels. We decided, well, with Southern Oregon, you, you got more people talking about it. So we put Southern Oregon on the label instead of Rogue Valley. We got pushback. Why would you want to do that? If you were in Napa, would you want to put just California on it? You want to put your Appalachian. And there's been no national marketing from Southern Oregon Rogue Valley wineries to speak of until recently. Mm -hmm. and, that, and when Julianne came, she came from Santa Barbara Winery, and she saw that area grow like crazy. She kept thinking, well, this area is going to grow. Well, we don't have Los Angeles near us, <laughs> and, and, and it just hasn't grown. Southern Oregon hasn't grown uh, like we thought it might. Mm -hmm. um, but Rogue Valley now is getting a little bit of attention because of Del Rio. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there are five, six wineries, but Valley View's been around a long time, but they haven't done much national marketing. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping it's like car dealerships. If you're one off in the middle of nowhere, you don't do as well as if you're on car dealership row. Mm -hmm. And so, we, like here in this valley, I had Cedar Ranch, I farmed, that's one of our other ranches, I farmed uh, for the U.S. Marshal. They confiscated the ranch, a guy was importing um, uh, hash and marijuana from Singapore. He had inherited his parents' boat building business, and he would send three sailboats a year, and two of them were dummies. And the other one was, and, and the cop that I talked to said he'd, he was out of LA and he, he'd been chasing the guy uh, for 15 years or something like that. They finally caught him. He left and they confiscated the ranch. And there were 10, 15 acres of grapes on it that, that uh, he had planted and had somebody else plant. It was a bad plan. Cabernet and Chardonnay, because that's what he liked to drink. And so, uh, with, with Cedar Ranch, um, I told the U.S. Marshal, you know, the guy left, and it, but if he beats you in court, um, he's going to sue you. You need somebody to farm these grapes, and I know somebody. So, for three or four years, I farmed for the U.S. Marshal on that ranch, and then they sold it to a, a guy, and it was a very wealthy man. And he sold it to somebody else who um, it, it went into almost bankruptcy and I ended up buying it because my bank told me we weren't a big enough account for him. That we go find another bank. We can't service a small account like this. And I said, well, buy this ranch and then give me the money to plant it. So that went through on the week of Lehman Brothers. <laughs> Nobody else was getting loans, but we had signed it months earlier, and they couldn't back out of the deal. So before we, I bought that, I had uh, Chuck Wagner from Camus came here because he had a friend that built housing for Pelican Bay, the prisons. Mm -hmm. Every time there was a new prison, he went and built a whole bunch of housing because all all the people working, they needed. To, so that was his business plan: follow the, the construction of. And he was a friend of Chuck Wagner's, and, and so he brought, he liked our wine and brought Chuck over here. And Chuck said, well, you want to sell for us? I said, no, but I know, and this was before I bought that, that, that Cedar Ranch, but I know a good ranch. I farmed it. 
So I took him over there, and I figured the best marketing I could do is to get some big names to establish around me. And he flew up here a couple times, and he was just on the edge of buying it, and then he had some problems. We had a big 2,000-acre vineyard in northern Mexico, Table Grapes, and it was losing a lot of money. And he had, his sister lives in Medford, and her kids, he was thinking he could put working over here. Mm -hmm. So that fell through, and I tried to find other people. Uh, um, Argyle, I had Roland come down here, and then, then I talked to St. Michelle, and, I, and none of that worked, so then we ended up buying it. Uh, and it's, I mean, that's probably where our best Pinot's coming from, is out of that ranch. Um, and I, for years I couldn't tell people that this, this vineyard and winery is built off of marijuana. When that was really illegal, it was kind of, don't even talk about marijuana. <laughs> but we got that ranch because of marijuana. Maple Ranch, the people were growing it. They, they got busted. And my stepdad, Bob Maple, said, well, I can make the down payment if you can make it pay. So we bought that ranch. I got a salesperson that was with Columbia that took some people golfing to Bend. He'd been with them for 20 years. They found the pot pipe in the back of the, the van and they were gonna drug test everybody and he said, well, just slap my hand. He, okay, you're fired. So I got, I got a great um, salesperson in New Olive, Oregon. So I didn't have to grow marijuana, but I built the winery off of marijuana. <laughs> That's incredible. Um, Forrest is a, obviously a, a family endeavor, so tell me about working, you have, uh, you have your daughters working here and, and families, tell me about that kind of multi-generation aspect to, to your business. Um, my late wife and I started it, she passed away in 2000. Um, my son passed away in a car accident a few months before that, and my daughter got meningitis and they told me she wasn't going to make it either. <laughs> that was a six month period. So uh, my daughter is still involved with it. Uh, she's, because of the meningitis, it scarred her brain a tiny bit and she had a seizure when she was driving and ended up in a wheelchair for months. But she's okay now. Uh, she got a new ankle six months ago and and but she can't work here because it's it's pretty much physical. Mm -hmm. So I remarried in 2003 to Terry, and uh, her daughter works here and lives at Cedar Ranch. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm, uh, my dad lived to be 95, so I'm just holding on, <laughs> thinking uh, maybe I can hold on to this next or the next generation or some generation wants to take it over. So it it. It has family aspects to it, but I don't see anything direct happening right at the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, and if family doesn't want it, I live my life and I had fun. They can go do what they want to do. <laughs> but I think my, my daughter, the boyfriend she has, is really good. Um, and I think that, that may come along here in the next couple of years. Mm -hmm. And my grandson, I got him on a tractor this summer at, at, at 14, 
And so maybe he'll pick up on it. <laughs> <laughs> Just skip a generation sometimes, right? Yeah. Uh, what was it? Uh, Bogle was, was a skip generation that happened there. Well, so what is in store here for Forest in the future? What do you see as you look ahead at, at down the road uh, five years? We're getting smaller because we stopped buying grapes. We're almost 100% estate now. We have 170 acres. And I'd like to get it, it to be estate. Um, and I think we're getting better. We're learning every year. Uh, the winemaker I have now, Stephanie, is really good. She's got a lot of good background. And uh, the winemaker I had before, Brian Wilson, was really good. I mean, he had been at Stag's Leap and Benzinger. And, um, so we've got processing down. I've, uh, right now, I have a 100-year-old barn that I converted into housing for 27, OSHA-approved 27 people. So we're pretty well covered on, on labor at harvest. And during summer, I bring a few people in. People at work here stay here 15, 20, 25 years usually and retire. So um, that aspect of running the business, um, got all the forklifts we need, all the tractors we need, everything's in good shape. Uh, so now it's just get the processing down. We're trying sparkling Pinot Blanc this year, a small amount. Um, we tried rosé last year, first time. I did a rosé years ago with Grenache. I bought the grapes from uh, Del Rio. But I think the rosé we have now is way better than what I made. I was the winemaker for the first four years. And I had to fire myself because I, I wasn't, I mean, I can, I can drink a glass of wine and kind of understand what's there. I drink a bottle or two, I got it. But when you got 50 lots of Pinot Noir and you're trying to blend, mm -hmm. you need somebody that's got a palate that gets it. And, and Sarah Powell was the winemaker here for 10 years. I, well, uh, Brian had a great palate. And Stephanie's got a really good palate. But I, I, all, I feel like women have a better palate in general than men. So... Uh, that's why I got fired, I guess. <laughs> Either that or get a sex change. <laughs> so we talked a little bit about some of the some of the Southern Oregon, some of the challenges unique to Southern Oregon. Uh, kind of, you said kind of being under the wing uh, of, of the northern part of the state. So what have you seen change here uh, since you started growing grapes here? Obviously, you're one of the first to really start growing any kind of quantity of grapes here after, after Prohibition. Um, what, what has changed the most down here, and, and what do you kind of see happening in the future? I think um, having some money come in, there's a couple of people that have been, you know, in Ashland there's one or two and, and they've got these big facilities that, and it, it works to promote the area. It's not the style I would want to be, but I think some of that's needed. And, and uh, there's a group right now that we joined, um, they got a, $300,000, $400,000 grant from Asante, which is the hospital mm. that, that runs the Oregon wine experience mm. tasting. Mm -hmm. And over the next three or four years, they've got money to pr promote Southern Oregon. Mm. And there's wineries that are kicking in. 
money and from Brian Wilson is kind of been going to all the meetings and then he tells me what's going on so I don't have to go to the meetings but I still can be supportive mm -hmm. and right now what they are trying to do does not work for us is they're trying to promote tourism but being here where there's not a lot of tourist business um, people on the way from uh, Medford or Ashland going to the coast um, people go by this area the Oregon caves are here, but it's still not enough to run a tasting room on. In fact, our tasting room now is probably one-third the traffic that we had 10 years ago before there was a lot of small wineries over by Medford. So I've, I've known, and then, and then direct marketing the way you need email addresses, and the best place to get them is in your tasting room. So if, if you don't have tasting room traffic, it, it limits so with this tourism project uh, that they're promoting, mm -hmm. um, we're kind of standing on the side and, and, and being supportive. Mm -hmm. But the next step they're supposed to take is to try to market Southern Oregon nationally mm -hmm. is a reputable area to be growing, growing wine in. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping in a year or two that marketing helps us a lot. What about as you look at Oregon wine in, in general, the, the, the whole industry as a whole, uh, obviously you've, you've seen a lot of changes there as well. Where do you see it, uh, Oregon, Oregon wine heading in the next five, 10 years? And I see a lot of French and California wineries trying to come in here because it, it looks like it's a, on the upgrowth. The land has been cheaper, but I think, well, it is cheaper than Napa and Sonoma. But uh, it's getting uh, way different than it was a few years ago. Um, the push around here is, is the hemp growing for the last year or two. And I'm hoping that that settles down. It, it, it can't be, and that's pushed a lot of land. And there's some vineyards have been pulled out and, and gone to hemp. And so that's not really helping our industry. There is one big grower that came in here He's got a ranch uh, ne next to two of our ranches over there. And he's got about 600 acres planted in Southern Oregon. He had a lot of acreage of, of almonds in California. Okay. And he can make money by losing money because he has tax write-off for the other properties he got in California, the almond growing. Okay. So, and he's in his 80s and things um, go up for sale and I'm hoping one of these days that somebody notices that that these were planted very well to good clones and that those ranches maybe can evolve into some other wineries in this area which would help us tremendously you need like a you need a big fish so is what you're saying yeah yeah interesting um, if you met someone who wanted to enter the Oregon wine industry today, what, what would your words of wisdom be for that person? Um, start with marketing. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you going to sell it? You can buy grapes. Um, and it, 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 you just got to figure out where you can sell it. There's a couple people we do private labels for, and they're really high on Oregon Pinot Noir. 
um, that it's going to grow like crazy. And looking at how many grapes are for sale now compared to three or four years ago, I don't know. If it, I think the plantings have outpaced a little bit the, the marketing. But that marketing can catch up real quick because we're so small compared to the national market. What, 1%? 1.5, yeah. 1.5, yeah. something like that. So there's, there's plenty of room for growth. Mm -hmm. And there's a, there's a lot of good land. I mean, I'm surprised over by Grants Pass. You go down river out of, the, out of Grants Pass and they got um, limestone. Um, uh, soils like in, in Sauterne and they've got heat to ripen things and they've got fog. Somebody ought to do <laughs> Sauterne over there and, and there's special little spots that it, it, it would work but like sparkling wine. I'd love to make sparkling wine. I think it would work well with our climate but it's marketing. I mean, you're you're up against big marketers worldwide, so you you really can't do it. Um, somebody big, one time the county agent from Mendocino uh, brought a group of people uh, from the Anderson Valley here when I had the clones and had wine made from them, and they they wanted to come up and taste the wine, and the guy who was the winemaker at uh, um, what's the the big facility there in, in uh, Anderson Valley Champagne outfit? Anyway, he said, "Come down, and uh, I'll take you through it and show you what you know what goes on." And uh, so I went down there. He had retired <laughs> a few months before I made my trip a couple of years later because I I was I really loved to make sparkling wine. Uh, and that we, with the Moscato, we have uh, uh, bubbles in that. And, and we're going to try a little bit of Pinot Blanc. Um, and I tried to late harvest Gewürztraminer a couple years ago, and that didn't work. We don't, we don't have cold with no wet. There is one process that uh, there was a winemaker that was at Bridgeview years ago, and he said, well, what you got to do to make a late harvest wine here is take a fertilizer spreader and put sand in it. Go down and, and sandblast your grapes and make little pinholes. Then put plastic on the, on the outside of it and you'll have the humidity in the damaged grape that you can get botrytis and the plastic will help you with the heat. I've always wanted to try that experiment. I haven't done it yet. <laughs> but, and, and I've, I mean, I've, Oregon State, I've done a lot of experiments through them, and uh, a lot of them, I mean, for the industry it helped, but it really helped me a lot. Um, the, the one recently that I heard ETS Lab said something to Stephanie, and Stephanie used to work at ETS Lab after college for six months or something, and uh, they said they thought, um, uh, the clay uh, that they spray on pears to keep blemishes off the skins of the pears, um, that if, if you sprayed that on the grapes, you could probably beat smoke taint. 
So I went to Patty Skinkas. Mm -hmm. Well, they had the fire that was mm -hmm. there by uh, Canyonville, mm -hmm. and we were getting a little bit of smoke. And I said, I want to do an experiment, and I can just do it in a little area. Only I had to smoke for two or three days, mm -hmm. but it, I mean that's one thing I, I think that might work. Mm -hmm. um, it's exciting. So if I if I can keep finding experiments like that, that. Uh, that that's what makes me excited, mm -hmm. and I don't have to keep doing the same old thing. And and I've gotten pretty good at not doing the the monotonous chores, which I I did for years and years. Stood out there in the field from sunup to sundown, and uh, so now I tell somebody else to go do that. I'm I'm pretty good at conducting, <laughs> and I get to pick the sort of things I want to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, as, as you look back uh, over your time in the industry, is there uh, something that you're particularly proud of that, you, that you've achieved or accomplished? Do you have a, a pr proud moment or a proud uh, accomplishment that you like to think back fondly on? Um, I've got 18 to 20 employees that like their job, they like coming to work, and they can support their families. And I feel proud of that. Um, it's not big time, but most of these people like where where they are. And they like the lifestyle they're living. And all that, that that's important to me. That's probably the most important thing. Absolutely. That's all the questions that I have for you today, Ted. Is there anything we didn't talk about that we should have? Anything I should have asked you? Anything we didn't cover? No. You probably want to see my short-handled hose. Huh? <laughs> I threw them away. <laughs> Guys, this should be in a museum somewhere. That's terrible. Well, well thank you so much uh, for this today. We really thank appreciate you. your time and your answers, and we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Okay. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.